Well, good morning, everybody. With respect to our <clears throat> tour through Second Samuel, uh, we've become accustomed to, to David now as the king of the United Tribes of Israel, um, settled and powerful, sitting on his throne in Jerusalem. But let's go back in time. And let's go back nearly to the beginning, back 20, 30 years, back to when David was a teenager. In those days, the nation was ruled by King Saul, the first king of Israel. And David, a teenager, he's serving in the court of King Saul as a soldier and a musician. But he's in fear of his life. Saul wants to kill him because Saul is slowly but surely losing control of his mind, losing control to bitterness and envy. However, David and Saul, sorry, David and Saul's son Jonathan have become very close friends. They're like-minded companions, united by their love for the Lord. They're equal to one another in bravery and faith, and both of them are gifted warriors, gifted leaders of men. And David knew that he needed Jonathan's help if he was to work out what was going on with the irrational King Saul and if he was going to work out how to respond. And at that time, Jonathan said to David, First uh, Samuel chapter 20, verse 12, Jonathan said to David, I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, that I will surely sound out my father by this time, the day after tomorrow. If he is favorably disposed to you, will I not send you word and let you know? But if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with Jonathan, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away in peace. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. But show me unfailing kindness, like, like the Lord's kindness, as long as I live, so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the whole earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. So what Jonathan was doing then was he was transferring his loyalty from the king, who is his dad, he's transferring his loyalty from his father, from King Saul, to David, his friend. And Jonathan knew that David would one day be king. It was only a matter of time. It was what the Lord had already announced through his prophet Samuel. But it took guts to do that. It took courage to transfer his loyalty from Saul to David. In exchange, he simply asked David to remember that and to treat him and his household as friends, not as enemies, when the transfer of power took place. We move forward in time about a decade King Saul still reigns, but one of the neighboring powers, the Philistines, are seeking, uh, sorry, are wreaking havoc right across the lands of the tribes of Israel. And in one of these wars, Saul and Jonathan are killed. 
at the time of their death, with the Philistine armies running unrestrained across the land, that there was an accident. And Jonathan, you see, had a son who was five years, who was five years old. And when news arrived at the royal palace in Gibeon about the death of Saul and Jonathan in Jezreel, his nursemaid, the, the boy's nursemaid, picked him up and fled for her life. But in her hurry to leave, she fell. And, and he broke, his, both of his ankles were broken in the fall. The bones knit badly. And the boy was never able to walk again. And this five-year-old's, this five-year-old boy's name was Mephibosheth. Moving forward in time again, about another decade or so, now David reigns in Saul's place. The king over all Israel, enthroned in the capital city of his own making, Jerusalem, king of Israel, and emperor over the nations of Amalek, Edom, Moab, Ammon, Philistia, and over the kingdoms of the Aramaeans and Zobah. David is lord from the wadi of Egypt to the Euphrates River. And at the height of his power, David asks if there is anyone left of the house of Jonathan. And actually what he does is he sets in motion a royal inquiry, a three-stage royal inquiry. Stage one, David inquires generally of his court, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? David's royal court didn't know the answer to that question, but they did know about a guy called Zabah, a servant of Saul who is still around. So Zabah is brought in. This is stage two of the inquiry. Zabah stands before the king. And stage two allows us to hear David's concern for a second time. Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Zibar, servant of Saul, knows about Mephibosheth, grandson of Saul, son of Jonathan, that he is still living and that he's living in Lodabar, a place which means no pasture. So stage three is bringing in Mephibosheth to Jerusalem from Lodabar. This allows us to hear David's concern for a third time. Now in its most detailed form, verse 7 Don't be afraid, David said to Mephibosheth, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Now, that word, we've actually heard it half a dozen or more times this morning. That word, kindness, which appears three times in our text, It's an important word in the Old Testament. Jonathan asked repeatedly for kindness. And we've heard kindness in our text thrice, three times. In Hebrew, the word is chesed. And it can be translated as love or mercy or kindness. And to flesh out all of the different flavors of that word, we might translate it faithful, loving kindness. And that's how some people do translate it. Faithful, loving kindness. David wants to show some faithful, loving kindness. He wants to show them the faithful, loving kindness of God. Why? 
for Jonathan's sake. David is being true to a promise. He made Jonathan a promise. They each made each other when they were teenagers, some 20 or 30 years earlier. And so to the conclusion of our story, David restores to Mephibosheth all the lands that had previously belonged to Saul. And I think we can, we can take it for granted that, that that would have been an impressive estate. It would have been a number of farms. It would have been a considerable asset. He makes Zabar and his entire household, 15 sons and 20 servants, he makes them servants of Mephibosheth. Now that Mephibosheth is landed gentry, indeed aristocracy, being his manager, his steward, is a position of high status for Zibar. A position presumably also of high income. And Mephibosheth himself will live in Jerusalem and eat at the king's table. And just so we don't understand that, the text itself spells out the significance of that for us. It is as though he was one of the king's sons a prince of Israel. It is all round an astonishing reversal of fortune. Certainly for Mephibosheth, for, 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 for that guy, <clears throat> for Mephibosheth, also for, for Zibar. Well, them's the facts. Let's now think about some of the characters in this drama. Let's think for a few moments about Jonathan. You see, Jonathan was right to put his faith in God's Messiah, in David. He did that at a time when, when very few people believed in David as the anointed one, as the Messiah. And it wasn't easy for Jonathan being true to David, knowing that he was the Messiah, when his dad still sat on the throne. Very difficult. But he was right to put his faith, to believe in David as, as the Lord's Messiah. And that's what he did. He was right to switch allegiance. For David remembered and kept his promise. That's a few words about Jonathan. Let's now think about Mephibosheth. Born into the royal family of King Saul, Mephibosheth started life as a prince of Israel, surrounded by the finest that that nation could afford. But all of that changed at the age of five. And then suddenly the death of his grandfather king, the death of his dad, Jonathan, and that terrible accident that rendered him a cripple with all of the shame that that carried. You see, in, in his culture, um, identity, existence is, is linked with function. And uh, he's a functionless person. He's a non-person. He's a useless person. He's a cripple. He's a waste of space. He's an embarrassment to his family. He's an object of contempt. He hates himself. He calls himself, in our text, a dead dog. A Hebrew euphemism for revolting wretchedness. He hates himself, yet it's the world's fault. The cruelty of life forces beyond his control. His text, uh, sorry, his name in our text means out of the mouth shame. That's what his name means, Mephibosheth. In real life, his name was actually Mephibaal, uh, meaning out of the mouth of the master. But the name Baal, being also the name of a Canaanite fertility god, fell out of favor with the scribes and the authors, and he comes to us in this text as Mephibosheth, 
out of the mouth, shame. A figure of shame. And as he grew up, the house of Saul fell ever deeper and deeper into shame. David's power on the rise, the kingdom of Saul passed to his uncle, King Ish-bosheth, who comes to us with a similar name, Man of Shame, and for similar reasons. The kingdom of Ish-bosheth becoming weaker and weaker with every passing day until, betrayed by his second-in-command and murdered by his lieutenants, the kingdom of Saul dies with the death of Ish-bosheth. And Mephibosheth falls into obscurity. No longer royalty, indeed worse, His existence is hushed up by the very few people who even know about him. And that's because any sensible king in the ancient Near East killed immediately any other person who could possibly have a claim to his throne. They eliminate them as a threat. It's the only way to guarantee political stability for your kingdom. It's a sensible thing to do. That's why, of course, when David asks his court the question as to whether there was anyone still left from the house of Saul, nobody knew the answer. They'd they'd all gone into hiding or fled into exile. And that's why, of course, when Mephibosheth does finally come into the presence of David, carried, of course, carried, he had no choice about this, no choice at all. When he does come into the presence of David, Mephibosheth is utterly terrified falling down on his face, bowing, lying prostrate before the king. He is utterly silent, saying nothing, giving nothing away. And and David knows that he's terrified, and he knows why he's terrified, and he calls him by name, Mephibosheth. And again, in, in total submission, utterly submissive, Mephibosheth answers, Look, I am your servant. And David answers, Do not be afraid. And and why not? Because Mephibosheth is about to receive his inheritance as an act of sheer grace. Um, What is an inheritance? Well, an inheritance is not something that any person ever deserves. It's not something that you can earn. An inheritance is a free gift. An inheritance is a free gift that you might get when somebody who loves you dies. It is not something that you can earn. It is never something that you deserve. That's an inheritance. His inheritance, as he would have known all too well, his inheritance was his grandfather's estate and his grandfather's servants. But there was a part of his inheritance that he had no idea about. His inheritance included the love of David, the faithful, promise-keeping, loving-kindness of David to his father Jonathan. That was his inheritance too. And so by an astonishing twist of fate, perhaps life is not so cruel after all, perhaps by an astonishing twist of fate, Mephibosheth is restored as a prince of Israel, dining at the royal table. And look, rescued from shame, poverty, and obscurity, he marries, and he has a son. All true, even though, as our narrator reminds us, last of all, this is how the text finishes, he reminds us, even though, this is all true, even though he was lame in both feet. It is one of the great, most astonishing turnarounds in the whole Bible. 
it would have made, so to speak, front-page news at the time. Extraordinary reversal of fortunes. So that's a few words about Mephibosheth. Let's, let's now think about David. Last week, uh, last week we noticed um, in verse 15 of chapter 8, uh, we noticed that verse 15 includes the words, David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. And last week I explained that whilst that is a straightforward translation of a straightforward text, the Hebrew has a force to it that's actually quite dramatic. David was making justice and righteousness for all his people. In other words, to be sure, yeah, yeah, David was doing what was just and right in every situation as things came up in a um, reactive kind of a way. But, but more than that, he's making justice and righteousness, taking the initiative, being proactive, eliminating injustice, uncovering corruption to make sure that his nation was fair and just, merciful and compassionate, in keeping with the laws of the Lord, the law of Moses. Okay, so the principle is given to us in chapter 8. Chapter 9 now functions as an example of that. Chapter 9 is an example of that. David making justice and righteousness. David kept his promise to Jonathan. And he didn't need to. In the sense that if he hadn't, none of us would have noticed. Nobody would have noticed. That's because it's, it's, it's only David's desire to keep his promise and his hard work in fulfilling his promise, it's only in that that the existence of Mephibosheth even comes to light. He comes out of hiding in response to David wanting to keep his promise. Now, in keeping his promise, David has to give away a small part of his kingdom to the grandson of a former enemy. But that's okay. David knows all too well that his entire kingdom is a gift from God. It's not deserved it's not been earned. And those who receive grace do well to give grace. And in keeping his promise, David changes everything for Mephibosheth. But you know what? In changing everything for Mephibosheth, David changes everything for everyone in Israel. And in changing everything for everyone in Israel, David actually also changes everything for everyone in Amalek, Edom, Moab, Ammon, Philistia, Aramea, and Zobah too. You see, for if the king keeps his promises, everyone must keep his promises. And if the king welcomes a cripple and makes him a prince then we too must all do the same. And woe betide any person who now uses the term cripple as a term of derision because actually the king owns Mephibosheth as his own son. So everything's changed. What is the nature of David's kingdom? Well, he's, he's, he's welcomed us into his dining room and his banner over us is, is said. His banner over us is love. Faithful, promise-keeping, loving faithfulness. Loving kindness. And, and the reason that David is doing all of this is simply his desire to copy God. 
to, it's the chesed of God. He's just copying God, the, the faithful, loving kindness of God. David is doing this because he just wants to copy God. So this is chesed for the sake of Jonathan, the chesed of God. And in copying God, David makes real the kingdom of God, the land of astonishing turnarounds, the land where the first are last and the last are first. Please, please allow me to spell out the blindingly obvious. This is all about Jesus. This is all about Jesus. And we too are Jonathan when we put our faith in Jesus. And we too are Mephibosheth when we come into the presence of Jesus. We too, when we come into the presence of Jesus, are receivers of hysterical grace. Princes and princesses invited to the Lord's table, inheritors of something wildly beyond our expectations and infinitely beyond what we deserve. And we too are David when we copy Jesus, acting out chesed, keeping our word, loving when others expect hate, giving grace because we too have received it, inviting those into our table who are despised, reversing the culture of our world. Please allow me to spell out the blindingly obvious, this is all about Jesus. 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 Amen. And the Lord be with you.